The second reading is taken from 1 Samuel 21 and goes to chapter 22, verse 5. David at Nob. David went to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you alone? Why is no one with you? David answered, Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. As for my men, I have told them to meet me at a certain place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here, provided the men have kept themselves from women. David replied, Indeed, women have been kept from us, as usual whenever I set out. The men's bodies are holy, even on missions that are not holy. How much more so today? So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. David asked Ahimelech, Don't you have a spear or a sword here? I haven't brought my sword or any other weapon because the king's mission was urgent. The priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. David at Gath. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands? David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman making marks on the floors, on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Akish said to his servants, Look at the man, he's insane, why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to meet him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. Here ends the reading. 
Here ends the reading. Okay, so we're going to look at that second Bible reading now in, in 1 Samuel 21 and the beginning of 22. We've been kind of following through this series in, in 1 Samuel and, um, and that's where we're up to. I'm really just going to focus on two bits of it. Um, but if there is any questions that come up on the way through, we're going to have question time later on. So just kind of make a note of any questions that come up and you can ask them uh, a bit later on. But let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do ask that as we come to reflect a little bit more on this part of your word, we ask that you will quiet the distractions of our mind so that we can hear with clarity what you have to say to us. And more importantly, Father, we ask that you will soften our hearts so that we will trust and obey what you have to say to us, that it really will make a difference um, to our lives, that we are people who trust you all the more and um, want to live your way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been seeing so far in this series in 1 Samuel that David, the giant slayer who killed Goliath famously, is on the run. Over the past few chapters, we've seen King Saul's growing jealousy and anger and fear towards David. He was kind of keeping it secret for a while, but now he's not hiding that at all. And he's openly and plainly trying to kill David. And so David is on the run for his life. And at this point that we get to in the beginning of chapter 21, he's fled to the priest Ahimelech in, at the house of God in the town of Nob. And today what I'm going to do is, as I said, I'm just going to focus on two parts of this section, one at the beginning and one at the end, that I think really challenge our view of what matters. And the first one, I think, challenges our view of what, what matters to God. And the second one challenges our view on what matters compared to the world around us, what the world around us thinks matters. So let's have a look at our first point, which is that God wants us to not hide behind false piety. You know what I mean by that? That false kind of appearance of religion, wanting to seem religious, that's piety. But just to recognise the true king. So don't hide behind false piety, but recognise the true king. Because, you know, it's entirely possible to go to church, to be religious, so to speak, to be a, a, what we might call a good person, a fine, upstanding citizen, as we like to say sometimes, and yet to completely miss what actually matters to God. Completely miss it. And, you know, in, in Jesus' day, there were some people who were kind of famous for, for doing that, for getting that wrong. There was a group of people called the Pharisees, that's exactly what they were like. And as we're going to see, Jesus himself talks about this situation that we've just read with David and Ahimelech to make this point about, about false piety and missing the point with what matters to God. So let's have a look at it. Now, you, you might remember that David fled from Saul in such a hurry, you know, out the, out the window of his house in the dead of night, uh, that he fled with nothing just the clothes on his back, so to speak. And so now he comes to Ahimelech in need. He needs food and he needs weapons. And I'm just going to focus on the first part with his request for food. And so what David does is he comes to Ahimelech and he asks him for some bread. But the only bread that Ahimelech has 
is this consecrated bread, that is special bread that was baked every week and put on a special table in front of the ark of God every week and and when the old bread was taken away and replaced with fresh bread, that old bread, only priests were allowed to eat that because it was special bread and they could only eat it in a holy place, a special place. This was no ordinary bread that you could just hand out to anyone. But that's all Ahimelech had. But surprisingly... As much as Ahimelech knew this was special bread, he was willing to give it to David and to his men, even though they were not priests. This bread that was only for priests. He was willing to give it to them, but on the condition that they had kept themselves symbolically and ceremonially clean. And so as we read that, we have this kind of strange contrast where the priest seems willing to be flexible and make an exception, a concession about the rules on one hand, you know, giving this bread that was only for priests to David, who was not a priest, but at the same time, not denying that this bread is special. And so he's quite firm on the importance that they need to be holy and and not unclean when they eat it. So you you kind of find yourself thinking, well, I do anyway. What's going on here? Why is he kind of allowing this here and and not allowing it there? It can't be that this is just a guy who plays fast and loose with the rules, that he he just makes it up as he goes along and doesn't really care. That's clearly not the case. Clearly there is something else going on here. And I reckon Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees a thousand years later, when he talks about this situation, actually gives us a clue as to what's going on. You can read it in Mark chapter 2 and in, in Matthew chapter 12 and in Luke as well. And this is what happened, right? Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain fields one day. And this day was the Sabbath, that is a Saturday, when they were not allowed to do any work at all. And as they were going through the grain fields, Jesus' disciples got hungry and they picked some of the bits of grain, kind of rubbed it in their hands so so they could eat it. And the Pharisees saw that and they said, Hey, Jesus, what your disciples are doing is breaking the law. They are working on the Sabbath. They're not allowed to do that. They're breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus, he refuses to get drawn into their argument. See, they want to argue about whether picking a few heads of grain qualifies as harvesting. You know, that would be work, harvesting. That's what they want to argue about. But Jesus doesn't want to get into that with them. Instead, he reminds them of this situation that we've just read with David, eating this consecrated bread that was only for priests, so in that sense, breaking the law. Technically, they were against the law, but somehow it was okay for David to do that. And Jesus, when he mentions this, he makes two conclusions, which I think help us to understand what's going on here. The first thing he says is, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The the rules were made for man. Man wasn't made for the rules. And this is what the Pharisees had gotten back to front. It's like they thought the world began like this, at the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created laws, rules. And God said, wow, these rules are so great, I should create some people so they can obey them. It'd be a shame to waste these awesome laws without having any people to obey them. I mean... It sounds ridiculous when you say it like that, doesn't it? Of course that's not what happened. God's good laws were made for people and not the other way around. And that's what the Pharisees got so wrong. 
They were actually using God's laws as almost like a shield to stop them from doing the good things that God wanted them to do. They even made extra requirements that sounded all really special and and, and godly and so on, so that they could stop doing, avoid doing the actual things that God wanted them to do. God's laws were meant to be good for people and to help them to love God and to love their neighbour. So imagine them somehow using those laws to avoid loving your neighbour. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's how back to front they had it. And I'll come back in a moment to what that might mean for us. But that's only half of what Jesus says about this episode with David. The second thing that he says is the son of man, that is Jesus himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is, not only were God's laws made for man, but also the law was meant to serve God's king and his kingdom. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. See, Jesus seems to be suggesting that there was something unique about David the the anointed king, that made this situation okay, that it was permissible for David to do this because he was the king of God's kingdom. Now, it's hard to know exactly what was going on in Ahimelech's mind when he gave this bread out. We're we're not told what he was thinking. David did tell Ahimelech that he was on a secret mission for the king, which is kind of subtly deceitful. Uh, Presumably, he meant... King Saul, but, and so maybe in that sense, Ahimelech thought he was serving the kingdom of God in, in, in that way. But the fact is that David himself was the anointed king. So whether the priest knew what he was doing or not, he was serving God's king and his kingdom. Whatever he was thinking, his actions became the example that you can't follow God's laws without following and serving God's king. The two must go together. God's laws are meant to serve God's king. And this is where the Pharisees really got things wrong. See, they say they're following God's rules, but they were opposing God's king, Jesus. They were using their own kind of twisted obsession with God's laws to oppose Jesus. It's like, imagine, you know, you the speed limit laws, you're careful to drive 10 kilometres below the speed limit while you're on the way to assassinate the president. Something's gone wrong in that situation, right? You can't say you're following God's way if you're not following God's king. You know, stand aside, Jesus, I'm too busy obeying God's laws. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And more so, they actually wanted to kill Jesus And we might not actually express it quite like that, but we can end up having the same attitude where our focus on rules or religion or spirituality can end up being a barrier or a justification that keeps Jesus at a distance from our hearts. You know, I'm doing these things and that kind of keeps God away from what actually matters inside of me. You know, God has made us moral beings. We care about what is right and wrong. And it seems to me that moral outrage is something that's increasing in our society. 
but it is entirely possible to be on about morality, to be on about what is right and wrong and good and bad, and to keep God at a distance while we do that. In fact, even to use that to keep God at a distance. I've got these things over here. That's what I need. I'm strict with my moral code, and maybe even some of that is in the Bible. But to use that as a way to justify keeping my heart to myself and at a distance from submitting to Jesus. I don't need Jesus. I've got my rules. I've got my moral code. Now, that happens in the world out there all the time. But it also happens in churches where the external appearance of being religious, maybe, becomes a barrier from actually submitting to Jesus in my heart. You know, I've seen, just as an example, I've seen men who emotionally abuse their wives in the name of Christian piety, in the name of wanting to be super spiritual. They create an air of spiritual superiority over their wives that crushes them down and makes them constantly feel like a failure because they're not living up to their husband's expectations. Men who say that they care about spiritual things and they pile them on top, keep piling them on. And in some ways it looks like they do care about spiritual things, but actually at the same time what they're doing is they're ignoring the one thing that Jesus clearly says, which is love your wives. And over time, the emptiness of their own faith that actually their heart is not aligned with God becomes clear. They were just big on the external appearance of religion, but not big on a heart that follows Jesus. Now, that's just one example, but it's something that we all need to bear in mind because we can potentially all do that in all kinds of different ways. But if I could just come back to the importance of recognising Jesus as the key to following God's way. That is, if I say I want to do what God wants, then the start of that and the centre of that always has to be aligning myself with Jesus rather than just finding some things that maybe God thinks are a good thing to do. And so maybe you're here today because you think, yeah, being in church, that's a good thing, that's what God wants. And that's true. That's a God thing. But can I say, use this opportunity today to make sure that you're not just ticking, ticking the God box so that you can justify keeping at God at a distance in your actual life. Following God's way of life must begin with actually following Jesus, handing your life over to him, putting your life under his authority and knowing the goodness of living with him as your king, the love, the forgiveness serving him. Otherwise, all our rule-keeping, otherwise all our spiritual way of being, otherwise all our religion just builds a wall between me and God. And what usually ends up happening is we focus on those things that you can see on the outside. Look, here it is. You can see that. And not the things of the heart that nobody else can see. And perhaps our second point will help us to kind of understand this and take it to heart, which is that followers of Jesus, followers of the true king, are not outwardly impressive. So we must be humble. Followers of the true king are not impressive. Be humble. As I'm sure you're all aware, we now have a new prime minister. And as soon as he was elected, Anthony Albanese has gathered a group of people around him, you know, cabinet ministers, 
and key staff. Now, I don't know what criteria he has used to kind of decide who those people should be. Presumably, they're people who he thinks will help him to lead well. You know, people who have certain skills and abilities or whose ideology kind of aligns with his. I guess you could say it's kind of the grown-up equivalent of kids choosing their sports teams in the playground, you know, when the captains line up on either side and the captains get to choose the biggest and the strongest and the fastest. Leaders want the best people around them, right? But compare that to the people who gathered to David in the cave of Adullam in chapter 22, verses 1 and 2 that we read just now. David left Gath, chapter 22, verse 1, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. How's that for the the cabinet and key staff of this up-and-coming new king. The people who gathered around David were the, were the riffraff. They were the, the bottom of the barrel, the leftovers of society, the nobodies, those people who were in debt, in distress, discontent. Over the page in chapter 23, when David wants to go and rescue a town from the Philistines, these people were afraid and were tried to talk him out of going. It's hardly the kind of people that you think He would want to have gathered around him to help him to do things well. But they're the ones who fled to David that day, who gathered to him, because somehow these people recognised that the place they needed to be was with David. And he became the commander of this ragtag bunch of followers. And perhaps you can see the similarity between these people and the people who gathered to Jesus. The tax collectors and sinners, we're told. The prostitutes and undesirables. You know, Jesus' closest followers were mostly uneducated. Peter pretty much only ever opened his mouth to change which foot he was putting in his mouth at any given time. He was hardly a natural leader by any means. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says about the Christians in Corinth. He says this, Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. Those are the kind of people that God has chosen to be followers of Jesus. What Paul says about them is also true of us, because that's how God operates. The kind of people that Jesus gathers to himself are not the impressive people, so that the impressiveness is Jesus and not us. His death that completely washes away our sin and restores us to God. His resurrection that gives us new and eternal life. That is the thing that should be the focus and that should be impressive and not anything that is in us. 
And it helps us to remember that we have more in common with that ragtag bunch of followers of David in that cave that day than we do with the, the cabinet and staff of a prime minister or the top picks of a sporting team. That if you have come to Jesus, then you have come to him with a need, not with a portfolio of skills that you can offer. You know, there was no job interview to see whether Jesus wanted you on his team. He said, come as you are, warts and all. And we must never forget that. It's normal to want to be impressive in the eyes of the world. That's normal. And to want to be seen as impressive in the kind of categories that the world values. But if our hope and if our value is in those things, then we'll never really come to Jesus. We'll never cling to him and hold on to him as the thing, the one that we need. And, you know, it's understandable that we want impressive people to join us and to become Christians, famous people to become Christians. You know, we often celebrate more, I suppose, when you hear about famous people becoming Christians, celebrities or sports stars or politicians or whoever it might be, or maybe or just the winsome and attractive people, the people that you kind of want to be seen hanging out with, whether it's physically or, or personality-wise. It's easy to be impressed by those things and to want those kind of people so that we can say hey look at you know if this person is with us then we must be worth hanging out with we must be good wouldn't it be great we think if more influential and impressive people were christians you know other people would take notice or they could make a difference they could they could gather more people to us if, if all the bosses at your work were christians i don't know if you think your bosses at work are impressive but you know at least they have influence wouldn't that make a difference? Or if all the popular people at school were Christians, then wouldn't that make a difference? Everyone would sit up and take notice. We could gather other people as well. And sometimes God does use people like that to grow his kingdom. Uh, you, could, you couldn't deny that when C.S. Lewis was converted from atheism to following Jesus, that has made a big impact on people becoming Christians. And I'm sure there are people among us who, whose lives have been affected by the writings of C.S. Lewis. Maybe it has been and you don't even know because what he's said and, and written is so, um, has made such a difference across so many different levels. But C.S. Lewis is hardly the norm. Not many of you were wise by human standards, we're told, or influential or of noble birth. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. And that is who we are, we're told. And it makes me think of some of the wonderful Christian people that I've known over the years who are not necessarily the kind of people who would want to put on a, on, a, on a banner and say, hey, this is what we're on about. You know, I think of this lovely couple that I know. Uh, both of them struggle in various ways. Their social skills tend to make things a bit awkward sometimes. They kind of stumble over the top of people in conversation and, and, and miss the point in conversation sometimes. Uh, um, you know, even their personal hygiene sometimes leaves something to be desired. But these are people who God has drawn to himself. They are loved and forgiven and they are such an asset to their church community. And, and as I think about them, I think something has gone terribly right 
when churches have people like that. Not necessarily the people that we would choose to be the ambassadors of what we're on about, but because that's who Jesus has gathers to himself. And we need to remember that that is true of each one of us as well in various ways. And that should give us a real dose of humility. And if I could bring us back to what we were talking about earlier, it strips away those external things that we might otherwise value and think are important, but we might want to focus on and say, this is what matters. No, Jesus says. He challenges our view on what matters because what matters to God is so very different to what matters to the world around us. What God wants, what matters, is that we come to Jesus, heart and soul and all of life, and we put our trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that it is so easy to focus on the external things, the things that we see and the things that we have learned to value from the people around us. And so we ask, Father, that you help us to hear what you tell us matters, a heart that comes to Jesus recognising our need and that puts our trust in him. Father, help us not to pretend that we are honouring you by just doing some things that we think maybe are what you like, but not actually submitting to Jesus as our King and Lord. Father, help us to actually bring our hearts before you, knowing that we need forgiveness and receiving uh, the confidence that we can be uh, brought back to you and reconciled to you through Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.